The AV Club recently published a study that showed, on average, people stop listening to new music at age 33. As many posted this article online, including me, most of the replies I saw fit into two categories. People over 33 claiming they still listen to new music, and people over 33 saying something like, that crap kids listen to today ain't music. Now, both Nick and I have been music fans as long as we can remember, and we are both musicians, and in this realm we also share some common thoughts about taste, and people's tendency to label things, like music, as either good or bad. And so we're going to do something a little different this week. You've heard Nick's voice from time to time on the show, jumping in, making quirky mid-rolls. Well, this week we are fully pulling them in. Yes, and I, Nick the American, I'm actually going to talk about the best-selling Canadian recording artist in history. And Brett, what are you going to talk about? Oh, I'm going to talk about mustard. All right, mustard. And together, we're going to answer the question of taste. What is really good and what is really bad? And how might this concept be negatively affecting the growth of your business, career, relationships, and life? So let's talk about taste, Brett. Welcome to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, sports, and pop culture. This week's show is a tag team effort, and we are talking taste. What it is, where does it come from, why do we have it, and how does it affect us? We learn a thing or two about Brett and Nick, and lastly, we chat with Dr. Robert Woody from the University of Nebraska. He talks about taste, fandom, burging, and corfing. My name is Brett Guida. And my name is Nick Jaworski. And and we are your hosts. I'm often struck by how emotional and positioned people can be when discussing their favorite bands or movies. These opinions seem to live in absolutes. And for some people, phrases like, "Uh, Back to the Future is vastly overrated, or Can we please stop calling Kanye West a genius, are the modern-day equivalent of slapping a man in the face with a glove. It is on. What's funny is that these arguments always seem to be centered on this idea that there is such a thing as a good movie or a bad movie, a good song or a bad one. Take the recent movie adaptation of Fifty Shades of Grey. The book series had sold over 100 million copies worldwide, and the movie has grossed over half a billion dollars since its release back on Valentine's Day. However, you don't have to spend too much time on Google to find clips like this. Hey, 100 million copies sold must make a good movie, right? Yes! Wrong! Oh. Fifty Shades of Grey is, quite simply, the worst movie I've ever seen. Whoa. So what is this? How can a book and a movie series that so many people clearly enjoy, guilty pleasure or not, be both a popular hit and a critical disaster at the same time? Is the movie good? Or is it bad? Is it worthy of the title of worst movie ever? Or is it just pretty lights and colors on a screen designed to distract us for a couple of hours? Okay, Brett, I have a perfect story for this. Is this a good time? Uh, Yes, Nick. I would say this is a perfect time. Yes. All right. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this idea of good and bad back when I was in graduate school. And so to help illustrate these ideas, I'd like to share a story, a true story that dates all the way back to the sunny days of 1998. Now, it was an awkward time for me. I was super skinny, had a long curly ponytail, and I was a huge, huge band nerd. And at this particular moment in the story, I'm in Mr. Moser's freshman geometry class taking a test actually failing a test and at the same time i'm falling asleep from the combination of my lunch food coma and the heat in my second floor classroom so there i am tired failing a test stuck in school and i truly didn't think that this moment could get any worse 
But then, blaring from a car radio in the parking lot, a certain ubiquitous song starts to drift into the classroom through our open windows. And I find out that, in fact, yes, this could get a whole lot worse. If I, if I could just interject here, I think it's important to mention here that Canada has apologized many times for Celine Dion. And, you know, and, and, and so, you know, don't forget, we also gave the world many other great things. Rush, John Candy, Zippers, and for the ladies out there, Ryan Gosling. That has been noted. But anybody who was alive back in 1997, and I am including babies, remembers that you simply could not escape this song, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. One of the biggest selling singles of all time. MGWGO, is that right? It sold over 15 million <laughs> copies around the world. That's not including the 30 million copies that the Titanic soundtrack moved, or the roughly 30 million copies that Celine's solo album, Let's Talk About Love, moved. And for a 15-year-old boy who didn't particularly get love songs and only saw the movie Titanic because the cute neighbor girl Kate James made him go, this song and hearing it was a fate worse than death. If I didn't already feel it, I knew then and there that I hated Celine Dion and anybody associated with her. Every time I saw her on TV or talking to Oprah or whatever, I just got mad. I hated Celine. Okay, Nick. Nick, this is this is sound like a pretty negative crappy yes. story. Is is, is that <laughs> is, is that the end of the story? Well, there's more, Brett. Oh, thankfully. <laughs> so let's flash forward. Let's flash forward to the year 2003. Five years, six years later, and by now, not only have I cut my ponytail off, I've shaved off all of my hair because I'm at basic training for the Illinois Air National Guard. Whoa, 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 whoa Nick, you <laughs> you were in the Air Force. Yes, yes. Okay, so does that make me Maverick or Goose? Because <laughs> Goose dies, I'm just saying, I, I, and Maverick gets the girl. Well, I, let's just leave that to your imagination. So, Brett, I'm not flying a plane. I'm actually I'm in an Air Force Guard band as a percussionist, so I don't know if that helps or hurts. So anyway, one of the hardest parts of basic training is that I, don't, I, I didn't get to listen to music. So I've been playing and writing music for the vast majority of my life, and then suddenly to go to this vacuum of just no music was, was really hard. I used to sing entire albums to myself just to pass time, uh, Paul Simon's Graceland or the entire soundtrack to Rent. Uh, and I would do that while folding laundry or patrolling the grounds. So maybe four weeks into basic training, uh, I run out of soap. And I tell my TI, who's the guy that yells at me, and he sends me to the BX, which is like a tiny mall, to get some more soap. And this is my first time getting to go anywhere by myself. And it was awesome. And so I had my own physical space to reflect and process the insanity that is working out all day and being yelled at all day. And so on top of that, I was training over Christmas and it was my first time away from home. And as often is the case with these stories, there's a girl at home, of course. Of course there is. And I didn't know what would happen to us. I didn't know what was going to happen when I got back. So I walk across the base and enter the lobby of the BX. And I'm so worried about running into some officers or somebody else that I don't even notice that there's music playing over the speakers. It's not until I'm on my way out, standing in the lobby, that I hear my first song in a month. And it's a song that I've heard before, but never actually bothered to listen to. I can read your mind, and I know your 
Wait, what? She can read my mind? It's an uphill climb And I'm feeling sorry But I know it will come to you again Get out of my brain, Celine. And those lyrics, this song struck me like a bolt of lightning. I just stood there in the lobby and, and just standing isn't something you should do at basic training, just a, a tip. But I did. I stood there and held back tears as Celine hit me with the chorus. When you want it the most, there's no easy way out. When you're ready to go and your heart's left in doubt. Don't give up on your faith. Love comes to those who believe it. And that's the way it is. When you and Brett, I swear to God this is true. While I'm listening to this song, all I could think was, that is the way it is, Celine. <laughs> now remember, I hate Celine, but here I am, holding soap and fighting back tears. It's just that she seemed to understand my own fears about completing basic training, about finding and keeping love, and she just urged me to keep going, that none of this was my own burden to carry, that everybody goes through this. And I'll make it through because just that's the way it is. And as dumb as it sounds, it was a transformative moment in my life, and it's a song that brings me comfort to this very day. Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't actually sound dumb to me, Nick, because, you know, it's a great story, and I, I, can, I can actually relate to that. You know, I think probably a lot of our listeners can, too, that, that feeling of music, you know, really speaking to you and having a moment with it. But, but what does that mean in, in the context of this episode? I mean, what are, you, are we talking about taste here? What do you feel it tells us? Uh, well, it, I'm bringing it up because it's a great example of just how subjective taste is. This story highlights this distinction between good and bad and how arbitrary it is. So I had heard this song before, but I hated Celine then. But now I love the song. So nothing external had changed. Celine was the same. The song was the same. The art was the same. But I had changed. A piece of art, a, a book, painting, statue, movie, TV show, song, that piece of art is static. You put it on the wall or you press play on your iPhone and it's the same thing every time. We are what changes over the years. We encounter these static pieces with a new perspective each and every time we encounter them. In fact, Carl Wilson, he's, he's a music critic and author of the fantastic book, Let's Talk About Love, A Journey to the End of Taste. He defines something that he calls a taste biography. Years of wisdom. The, the idea is that there's a sort of story behind everyone's taste. There's something about where you come from and what you've been through and what you've been exposed to. Basically, the art we love and the art we hate are simply the result of our own experiences. Obviously, this doesn't just have to do with music, but all kinds of things. Movies, books, poems, even colors. Yeah, and you know, you know what's interesting here, Nick, is we've been talking about this idea of taste connected to experiences which is a newer use of the word. The primary definition of taste is connected to flavor, mm -hmm. you know, how we actually experience food and drink in our mouth. And in that realm, taste is also connected to our experiences and our memories, right? The taste and smell of something can bring us right back to a place or time in our past. And actually, Dr. Stuart Firestein spoke of this in an interview with Big Think. Now, one of the things we can note about those memories is they're always emotionally laden somehow or another. You don't smell something and remember a page of text 
or an equation or a phone number or something useful like that, you always remember something like grandma's living room, the first day of school. The other is that they're, they're long-lasting. We recall things from many, many years ago, and they're extremely vivid. These emotional memories, they can be positive and negative. You know, as much as the smell of banana bread may take you back to your mom baking, anyone who's ever gotten sick from eating or drinking, you know that that experience stays with you for a long time as well, sometimes years. I mean, for some people, they can never smell that food or that drink again without having an instant vomit reflex. I don't know about all of you out there listening, but for me, music works very much the same way. You know, I can hear a song just as my nose would smell that banana bread. When my ears hear just a few notes, I am transplanted back to a moment. And often it's very visceral. The emotions rush back. I even feel sensations in my body. Whether those sensations are a pleasant buzz or maybe something more equivalent to that vomit reflex. <laughs> you know, either way, music like taste, it stays with us and it can take us back. And this brings us back to the study we mentioned at the top of the show, right? Claiming that the average age people stop listening to popular music is 33. The study done by Ajay Kalia used Spotify listening data to determine who was listening to what. Ajay claims that two main factors explain why 33-year-olds stop listening to the latest pop hits. One, older listeners actually find less new popular music for themselves, and two, older listeners tend to revisit the popular music of their youth rather than replace it with what is popular today. It's not that popular music today is objectively worse than what a 33-year-old grew up with, it's just that they don't have the same relationship with it. And that likely has more to do with the events surrounding the music, their lifestyle, their friends, than it does with the music itself. So most don't hear popular music as often, and even when they do, they are rarely having the same kinds of new visceral experiences with friends they were having when they were younger. Right. So, so we agree that so much of our taste comes from our past, the sense of story, the sense of self. But there are definitely some other things at work, and, and one of these mechanisms is our need to belong to a larger group, to identify with others. So, for example, if you walk into any high school cafeteria and look around, you're sure to see many students separated into clusters. While it's stereotypical, as a former high school teacher, there is definitely some truth to this. You'll see... Rotsy guys, preps, JV jocks, Asian nerds. Each clique has their own pattern, customs, dress, and hairstyles. Well, the question is, why? Well, we sometimes choose the things we want to emphasize about ourselves in an effort to associate with other people. March, ah, pink! March, I can't wear a pink shirt to work. Everybody wears white shirts. I'm not popular enough to be different. While this can happen consciously with the kid choosing to try and look like the cool kids or the goth kids, it often happens subconsciously as an expression of our desire to belong to something, some tribe that we can call our own. We also use these choices to differentiate ourselves from other groups. The teenager will often wear clothes or act in a way as a direct response to his or her parents or the man. So basically, we use taste as a way to create groups. You and me, cool kids and band nerds. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is bad at all. Humans need other humans. The emotional benefits of belonging are vast. 
They influence who we form relationships with. They influence whether we become rich or poor. They influence whether we live or die. Uh, and they influence, in fact, how we feel. Our decision to band together in the first place allowed us to hunt, gather, learn from each other, build villages, map the world, travel to space, and invent Cherry Coke Zero. This idea that we perform a version of ourselves fits with the work of sociologist Irving Goffman, who wrote the famous book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Goffman, like the bard, believes that all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. We perform a version of ourselves for the people around us in order to belong, in order to feel good. So our taste, specifically how we choose to display it, is much more than about what is good or what is bad. In fact, the quality of something exists outside of the thing itself. It's more about who we are and how we want to be perceived, both consciously and subconsciously. You know, Nick, as we've been talking about all this, I find myself periodically thinking about mustard. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> mustard. <laughs> I did say I was going to talk about mustard in the show. Um, now, I know that doesn't maybe make sense at the moment to you or anyone listening, but just think about mustard as my Celine Dion, kind of. Okay. Okay. While I was editing, I realized I should have said, you mean mustard is your Celine Dijon? Huh? That's, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, let's go back. We're going back a few years, probably about eight or so. And at that point in my life, for my entire life, I hated mustard. I love ketchup <laughs> and I hated mustard. Right. I mean, if, some, if something had mustard on it, I wouldn't eat it. If I accidentally ate it, I would spit it out. If you made it for me, you had to remake it. I mean, I just hated mustard. And at the time, I mean, hating mustard was who I was. I don't remember it feeling like a choice. I didn't choose to hate mustard. I just hated mustard. You know, I had green eyes. I had brown hair. I was born in Canada and I hated mustard. I know it sounds funny, but that's what it felt like, right? Like it felt like part of my identity, just who I was. And then one day, out of the blue, it wasn't. All of a sudden, I loved mustard. And the crazy thing is, I don't even remember a specific moment when it changed. Like, I don't have a moment like you had standing there holding soap crying. It was just that one day, I hated mustard. And the next thing, all of a sudden, I realized I was putting mustard on everything. I'm putting mustard on hamburgers. I'm putting mustard on hot dogs. I'm putting mustard on anything. All of a sudden, what I was so sure was part of my identity wasn't. That experience had a powerful impact on me. As I truly realized, through mustard of all things, that our belief, our taste, is not an absolute. It's changeable. You know, often we think, well, this is just who I am, right? Or, well, Celine Dion is terrible. And we treat those beliefs as facts. But they're not facts. They're just beliefs. And those beliefs, they're not permanent. They can change. So perhaps you, the listener, can think of a time in your life when you were so adamant you were right about something, and then years later you found yourself feeling the complete opposite. And I think all of this speaks to the critical takeaway from this episode. You know, what's good? What's bad? It's subjective. You don't happen to be the only person with good taste. 
everybody has a story behind their favorite music, band, movie, iPhone apps. We benefit when we recognize that their stories have value. And in that, maybe it's even a little bit about empathy and looking beyond the music or the movie itself and at the emotional experience it provides someone. I bet you'll find at times that what one person gets out of classical music is the same thing that another person gets out of speed metal. Oftentimes we see something new, our instinct is to decide if it's good or bad. And then, if it's good, we like it. And that decision, not the thing itself, dictates how we experience it moving forward. Whether or not something is good or not is not about that book, song, food, movie. It's about you. Who are you? What are your beliefs? The thing is, we often use our own personal preferences as a basis for who we choose as friends and how we interact with people at work. The ones we share a similar taste biography with, they become our friends. We share stories, laughs, secrets, and more experiences that deepen our own ingrained aesthetic story. But when we only focus on those with similar tastes, we miss the chance to meet and interact with other cool new people, people with different but equally valid stories and values. We also risk missing out on new opportunities and creating true innovation in business. We grow more through pushing our boundaries and broadening our experiences than we do in living in a rinse and repeat life. Same experience, same people, day in, day out, rinse and repeat. We're all just trying to make the most out of our lives, and taste is one way to help us narrow in on things we enjoy. You know, for some people, this very episode of Where There's Smoke will be the best we've ever done, or the worst. But remember, neither is actually right. It's just about who you are in this very moment that determines how much this episode resonates with you. Fifty Shades of Grey isn't good or bad, and neither is Celine Dion. Those labels exist outside of the art itself. When you open yourself up to new understandings of things and new perspectives, you'll be opening yourself up to new people and new experiences and new results. And that's the way it is. <laughs> yes, Nick. And that's the way it is. When you want it the most, there's no easy way out. When you're ready to go and your heart's left in doubt, don't give up on your faith. Love comes to those who believe it. And that's the way it is. When you Hi, it's Nick again. So as you can tell, this episode has been just a little different and for a variety of reasons, but we covered just a lot of potential points of entry in that first act. So for act two, we're going to just slow down a little bit and focus on just a couple of ideas that popped up. So today I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Woody, who's a professor in the Glenn Korff School of Music at the University of Nebraska. His background is in music education and music psychology. He's a blogger for Psychology Today, and he publishes just some really cool, engaging, progressive research on the psychology of music, particularly for music teachers and on performance anxiety. So today, we're just talking about the formation of taste, the importance of belonging to a group, a fandom, and then we touch on this question of, well, why is it important to know that good and bad are subjective. Like, who cares? And, and Bob gives a wonderful answer for that. So, of course, when we really, really, really like something, uh, we become fans of it. And 
what bigger fans do we have than adolescents, middle school kids, high school kids? So we start our conversation with Bob discussing how teenagers help find their way in the world through being a fan of something or somebody. Sociologists who study these kinds of things, they really like adolescents because teenagers <laughs> and teenage cultures, they're like, teenagers are like normal people, just incredibly more defined. So, you know, they wear their hearts on their sleeves, oh, as yeah. the saying goes. So uh, sociologists, including sociomusicologists, like to study the tastes and uh, taste cultures of adolescents. Mm -hmm. And absolutely what the research shows is just what you articulated, is that uh, teenagers tend to um, define their subcultures around what they're fans of. So their uh, accepted styles of music, uh, favorite artists, mm. uh, musical artists, and favorite sports teams and, and athletes that they admire as well. So when we talk about not just teenagers, but then we also mm -hmm. have just adult people who love mm -hmm. things. I mean, I'm talking all mm -hmm. kinds. We've got sports and we've got, you know, uh, the, the new Star Wars trailer came out a couple weeks ago right, and everybody right. lost their mind. Uh, what is it that we gain by being so passionate about something that is clearly outside of us, right? It's not like, I'm kicking the winning field goal for a team. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so what, what is it that we gain, do you think? There's kind of two ways to go on that. One is to kind of the study of celebrity and why people are so obsessed with, with celebrities. Uh, you know, even you know, things like the royalty in, in Great Britain, yes. why people are so uh, interested, even in the U.S., so interested in these, these people and up to, you know, to the, our reality TV stars who really don't have any claim to fame other than fame. Right. Um, but, you know, as far as why do people identify with maybe musicians and, and athletes who are, in fact, accomplished and who have skills that are admirable, again, it comes down to this, this idea of identity and that people like to um, root for people that they identify with. Maybe they um, share some similarity with that person. Maybe they're from. Mm. the same town, or maybe they have some similarity in terms of some demographic factor that, mm -hmm. that is something they really uh, are, are proud of, and they identify with that person, and they want to see that person succeed. And especially if that person, you can follow that person you know, on television mm -hmm. or through movies, and you can really track what they're doing, then you can kind of enjoy their successes with them. So... We talked a little bit about it. We're trying to express mm -hmm. this sense of, like, when we, when we choose somebody, let's say it's a sports team, and we choose mm -hmm. this team, when they succeed, you know, we feel that rush of success. Right. <laughs> is, that, is that all this yeah. is? Is that what we're doing? Well, what some uh, researchers have, have called this, they've got some fun names, uh, Berging, Berg, B-I-R-G, which stands for Basking in Reflected Glory. <laughs> And then corfing, C-O-R-F, corf. So casting off reflected failure. Okay, hold on. So we've got so, berging, which is basking in reflected glory, and right. corfing, casting off reflected failure. All right. So what are they? So berging is when the, the, the team or the performer that you identify with, that when they have success, then you feel the success yourself because you are a fan. <laughs> and with team sports, it's seen real obviously when 
Uh, if you listen to sports radio and you, you get somebody whose team is doing well and they call in to talk about their team, they refer to their team as we a lot. You know, mm-hmm. We're going to win it. We're <laughs> rolling through the season. We're going to dominate in the playoffs. We, we, we. Yes. That's the, the basking in reflected glory. The, the casting off failure is when your team does poorly. <laughs> uh, then all of a sudden they go from we to they. Of course. And you might hear the irate fans call up the sports radio and say they couldn't do anything right <laughs> and it's very critical and it's they 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 kind of uh, distance themselves emotionally probably as a, a coping mechanism but and i myself have done all of these things <laughs> so i thought about this mm-hmm. a lot when i used to teach uh high school i used to make th- do this example of um and we talk about it in this episode that how many kids now who listen to Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of those kids now in 10 years are going to look back and be like, well, that was dumb. Like, <laughs> you know, the music didn't, you know, the music isn't changing, but somehow they've changed and they, they regret the things that, uh, that they used to like. Is there, is there looking at it now, do, do you see this value? Should we, should we cast off these old, uh, our old favorites or is there something we should be gaining well, from them? I think in 10 years, um, they may look back at, their choice to wear Justin Bieber's hairstyle <laughs> or to emulate Miley Cyrus's behavior, they may look back at that with regret, but they probably won't turn on their music from that time and, and dislike it. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, there's some indication from the research that the music that we, we kind of fall in love with as teenagers stays with us for our lives, and it kind of becomes our home base and our, our basis of con- comparison for all of their music from then on. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that in 10 years from now, believers are going to <laughs> think Justin Bieber's music is was bad, but they might see pictures of themselves with his hairstyle and think, wow, what was I thinking? But that's just because the hairstyles have changed. But, and, you know, if Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus are as good at, as they seem to be in terms of, you know, managing their celebrity, and then they're they're going to continue adapting and changing their image as times change. Where can people find sort of more of your ideas and writings online? Yes, my I have a blog called beingmusicalbeinghuman.com, and I'm also a blogger on the Psychology Today website. So if you go to psychologytoday.com and look under uh, all the bloggers there, you'll find me. Cool. Any any last words you wanna you wanna leave us with or? Uh, no, I think this is a great topic, and uh, taste is it's it's a really complex thing. And and as we you and I talked about a little earlier, I find it really interesting how we take something so subjective, like what we like and what we dislike, and we often express them in objective terms. You know, mm. we don't often say, "I love this music. This music makes me feel so strongly." we kind of pass the credit to the the object, the music itself, when we say, this music is great, this band is so awesome. So we, yeah. we like to kind of state it in objective terms, which I think suggests that everybody should uh, like them the same way we do. What do we get when we, when we do that? Why would we want to do that? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a good thing, but uh, <laughs> I, I think that might be a basic... Uh, you know, people throughout history have, have kind of struggled with tolerance of uh, differing opinions and viewpoints. And I think this is just one example of that. But I think the more people can actually 
they come to grips with the fact that what they like is what they like and not everybody likes it, nor should they necessarily. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I think that can make us, um, I think there, it's possible that that can contribute to greater empathy between people of different groups, different uh, cultural groups, you know, culture defined all kinds of ways. Well, I, th- I think that's great, Bob. And again, thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hit you up next time for something else. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Is it that time already? Shout out! For the iTunes reviews, Swanee Dog Oz from Australia, PJ Daly from the USA who noted, I have already purchased three books from the guests on the show in an effort to learn more and better myself, my company, and my relationships. Awesome. Keep applying the knowledge. For the Twitter love, thank you, Matt Shilliday. As well, Kate DeGilio. Her friend Claire asked, is there a quick life hack for achieving self-actualization? And Kate tweeted back, our show. Now, to protect ourselves legally, we are not saying whether smoke can create these kind of results, but we encourage experimentation. Sarah Day for tweeting out about her awesome Where There's Smoke-filled weekend. And Bud Hennekes, Brendan Hufford, and Ty Harmon for their continued support. Check out their podcasts, A Boundless World, Entrepreneurs in Coffee and Escape Velocity, respectively. As well, we'd like to thank author Kevin Smokler for taking the time to listen to our show and provide us with constructive feedback. Find Kevin on Twitter at WeeG, that's W-E-E-G-E-E, and look for his book Brat Pack America about 80s movies coming out next year. Please continue to create conversations out there through iTunes reviews, as well as sharing things on Twitter, joining our Facebook page. We love you for all that you do and love hearing from you. Use the hashtag where there's smoke so we can find your messages. Where there's smoke is resourced, created, concocted, mixed, cooked, sliced, served, written, produced, chewed, edited, hosted, and served by Brett Gaida and Nick Jaworski. And they also do all the dishes afterwards. If you want help making your podcast sound awesome, reach out to Nick at podcastmonster.com. And if you want Brett to speak at an event, write and deliver a keynote, coach or consult, contact him at connect at where there's smoke. If you want to stay in the loop, join our mailing list. You have two options. On the phone, text the word SMOKE to 66866 or go to our website, www.wherethersmoke.co. While you are there, you can leave a voicemail for us. Feedback, questions, thoughts, ideas. There you can also find a link to show notes, which include links to all the clips used in the episode as well as links to anything else referenced in the show. Our theme song is written and performed by Des McKinney. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. And now it is time for our clip of the week. And as much as I thought we could give some kudos to Mean Girls or help boost Homer's self-esteem, there's really no way it can go to anyone else other than Celine Dion herself. And specifically, her 1999 single, That's The Way It Is. Thank you for your contribution not only to this show, but to Nick Jaworski's life. So there we are then, a simple little menu that anyone could knock up at home. Well, that's all, and until we meet again next week, good night. Thanks for listening. We love you. We'll see you next week.